This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode 236. Hello, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest for you. Her name is Dr. Cindy Trice. She is a multi-state licensed relief veterinarian with over 18 years of experience. She's the co-founder and CEO of Relief Rover and the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Kick It Pajamas. She's also one of the newest board members for the North American veterinary community. Welcome to the podcast, Cindy. I'm delighted to have you here. Julie, thank you for inviting me. I'm super excited. I know. I'm so excited. This is going to be great. We met at the VMX because we were both uh, vying for board positions. So Cindy got it. So I'm so proud of her and excited for her. Um, so anyway, if you could start by telling um, me about your veterinary journey, that's the question I always ask my guests because I think that's a really good place to to start these conversations. Yeah, so I may in some ways be an outlier because I was not the person who was the kid that always knew they wanted to be a vet. I had no idea. And um, we always had animals. So, you know, we were a, we were a pet household. But so I grew up around animals. Um, but it never occurred to me to be a vet. It was never on my list of things I wanted to be. So I actually, I went to college. I got a degree in mass communications. I worked in corporate video production um, and kind of worked my way up from production assistant to um, an associate producer. Then I started doing freelance uh, in, in production work. So I would work on uh, documentaries or movies or commercials or TV shows, just kind of hustling work. And, you know, that, that may be two days of work, or it could have been eight weeks of work, you know, depending on the show. Right. And uh, it was really fun. It was a really fun lifestyle. But at some point, I, I just, I kind of always say I had this like mid twenties crisis. I did that work for about six a years. A young midlife crisis. It was, yes. And, you know, as I've talked to other people, I've learned like, I'm not the only one that goes through this. It's where you sort of realize like, okay, is this where I think I need to be like, I know I have this whole career, you know, work life ahead of me. Have I made the right decision? And that was kind of what I went through. So I, I call one of my, you know, BFFs from that I've known since elementary school. And I'm having this, you know, I, I probably was in tears and I, I probably was being melodramatic about the whole thing, undoubtedly. And she gave this piece of advice. She's like, okay, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted. Don't think about whether it's possible from, you know, whether you think you're smart enough or whether it takes more schooling or, you know, how much it costs to get there. She's like, don't think about that. What would you do if you could do anything? Which I thought was such a fun question. That's an awesome question, and isn't it? It's yeah, because she kind of gave me permission to just open my mind. It was like, it was safe to say it. We were just playing a game, right? right? Like it's you know, there was no yeah, it's dreamy. There was no real risk there. Right. Um, and I was with a trusted person, so I didn't have to feel foolish no matter what I said. Right. So I remember very clearly that I said, I would study the relationship between animals and people. And honestly, I don't, that's even, cool. I don't even know what I meant by that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that's a really cool thought, right? 
Yeah. And that human and I, animal bond. Exactly. And I didn't even awesome. know to call it that. Right. You know, I didn't even, that Never wasn't heard of it. It wasn't a term in my vocabulary. And so she gave me the best advice. She goes, okay, just go out and get a job working with animals. It does not matter what it is. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just go out and do it. And that's where you start. Nice. And I was like, oh, that's really smart. So I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I, I picked up two volunteer gigs at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito and um, at the Lindsay Wildlife Museum. And I just was like, okay, you know, volunteers job is pretty easy to get. Right. And that kind of gave me an in. And then I was still doing production gigs. Like that was how I was making money. Um, and then I ended up applying for a job at a vet clinic as a, as a receptionist. And when I went into the vet clinic to apply for the job, he looks at my resume and it's like all this production work. And he's like, why do you want a job here? And this is the first time it ever occurred to me. This is no way. I said, because I want to be a vet. And I just in said that, that interview in that moment. Like you just pulled that out of your butt. <laughs> I totally, I totally did. I love that. That's awesome. And, um, and then, so I got the job and, um, and then through working with him, um, he was a solo practitioner, San Francisco Pet Hospital, uh, Dr. Lee Morris, and he was awesome. And through that job and seeing what he did, I was like, oh, I actually do want to be a vet. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And so then I, I had very successfully avoided science classes in my undergraduate years. So <laughs> I had to go take all of those. So I worked, I volunteered, and I went to school at night. And I it took me three and a half years to get to pick away at all those uh, prereqs that I needed. And then I ended up uh, starting vet school at UC Davis um, in 2000. That's awesome. That is a really good story. Yeah. It's not, it's not the typical way people get to it. No, but. I mean, I've, I've talked to other veterinarians that it was like their second career. Like I've heard mm -hmm. that story before, but the fact that you just lied out of your head that you wanted to study <laughs> animals. Yeah. And then you did that in the interview. I think that's really cool. Yeah. So yeah. And so then you actually did it because that, you know, like how old were you when you started vet school? I started at 30. I graduated yeah, I think, at 35. I think that's intimidating to a lot of people. And it, it's too bad that it is, right? Because so many people, when they first get out of high school, don't know what they want to do. So why yes. not have a, a career and then change? You know, like I've, I've even thought, oh, it'd be fun to be a lawyer. But then you get that idea, well, you're too old to go to school. I really don't think that's true. I, my favorite stories are, well, one, I believe that, that, you know, we have, we have however much time we have, right? Like, and none of us know how much time we that is. We don't know, yeah. And, um, but I, I believe in reinvention. Like, why not? You know, and right. I also believe that you don't, this can take the pressure off of young people or even um, older people who are having to like make decisions about their life. Like you don't, when you pick something and when you pick to explore something or do something, it doesn't have to be forever. Right. And if you put that pressure on yourself, like, okay, this decision is locking me into something, then it does feel really stressful. Yes, And of course, does. you know, many of us have to make money. You may not have the luxury of being like, oh, I'm going to go travel the world and figure it out. Right. I mean, if you do, 
awesome. Good for you. More power to you, right? (laughs) More power to you. But you can, there is a way to both earn a living, support your, you know, your lifestyle and, you know, pay your bills and things like that and continue to explore and grow and figure out who you are, where you want to be. And that can shift. Like your values can shift. Your priorities can shift during your life through like all sorts of things can shift those. And it is okay to reinvent yourself. You know, I, I plan to continue reinventing myself. I'm not done. Well, yeah, I kind of did. I mean, I, I always wanted to own my own hospital. So I did that. But then as I got older and my kids grew up, I was like, all right, now what am I going to do? Like, what's my next challenge? And so that's how I, I stumbled across this life coaching thing. And it's just like the best. So yeah, I encourage people to do that. A lot of the people that I coach kind of come to me thinking that they're stuck, you know, Mm -hmm. either in vet med or, you know, just in their life. And I think that that, that thought, if you ask the question that your friend asked you, Mm -hmm. if you could do anything in the world without any restrictions, what would it be? I think that is a, like a really key question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It can really crack open your mind and it may not be that you do the exact thing that you say, but you just, you just open up that space in your brain to start thinking about other things and, you know, what you enjoy and, you know, um, and what interests you, you know, yeah. Like I just listed all the stuff that interests me, self-help, leadership, blah, blah, blah. What could I take all of that and turn it into something? And, you know, that's when I was like, oh, this is it. This is cool. Yeah. So so that kind of leads me into a question. This is graduation. Like we just graduated a whole new crop of veterinarians and veterinary technicians, right? In May. What about their new vet struggles? Like, do you have some stories or advice for people that are just graduating and getting into this profession with us other than it's so, so cool. And I'm so excited for them. Um, yeah. Do you well, have like anything to advise them or talk about? A hundred percent. I do think, I do think it's an amazing profession and I'm super proud to be a part of it with warts and all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you from having been a multi-career person, every career has its, has its, has its flaws. Like it just does, you know, it has, they all have their unique issues and, and things that you, you know, if you're a part of any industry, you're, will will there will be struggles. They'll be different. Um, but you know, there'll be struggles. So, um, I do think that the, you know, veterinary, uh, industry, has some challenges that were not there when I graduated. We had our own. Things have changed. Yeah. Things have changed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So ours um, were different struggles. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some of them line up. And I would say some of the, the big struggles that, you know, even back then we had is, you know, that feeling of, you know, you're, you, you've learned a ton. And in some ways you kind of know the most you might ever know, right. When you graduate from a, from an academic perspective. Right. And, um, but the thing that I think all of us need to learn is, uh, it is okay to not know. And it is okay to admit that you don't know that is a, that is a challenge for any, any professional, whether you're a veterinarian or not, is okay to not know. 
There's a ton of it. There's a like a fire hose of information coming at us at all times. And it's constantly changing and it is impossible to know everything and you are not expected to. I love that so much. Yeah. I, I tell that to veterinarians all the time because we have this imposter syndrome about, I don't know if vet school causes it, if they want us to know everything or they think we should. And then we get out and we think that's the way it is and it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I have this story that I, I don't know, you know, I think I, I don't really know what the underlying cause is. Like, you know, I know people talk about how we're kind of, you know, self-selected for perfectionists and, you know, things like that. Like, I don't right. know, maybe there is some, some truth to some of that and maybe, you know, vet school, because we're ta- often taught by specialists. And yes. um, so that is where we're receiving um, the information and so you feel like you need to have that level of knowledge, but for every single specialty, right? Like yes. if you're a general practitioner yes. and, you don't. And, so, and you don't, and you can feel the pressure. This is a story that, um, oh no, that's okay. There are a couple of things that I think experiences that I had that kind of contributed to that feeling of being afraid of uh, looking stupid, <laughs> you know, or, or looking stupid either to the client or to your, to your colleagues. Like I know some of us have a fear of looking stupid in front of our fellow vets that we're working with, or even, you know, the staff, because sometimes the staff will know more than you. Oh yeah. And you just have to, you have to figure, you know, that's okay. I've been practicing now since 2004 and I still learn things from, um, from technicians all the time. And, and, it is this balance of having enough confidence in your education and confidence in your ability to um, find the information that you need to handle the case um, matched with the humility that you don't need to know everything, that it is okay to ask other people for help and advice on a case. And it is okay to admit to the pet parent you know, this is something I need to research or I need to look up. And, you know, my goal is to help you make the best decision for your pet and give you the best advice that I can. And in this circumstance, um, this is not something I've run across yet. I would like to consult with some colleagues and, you know, or in some of my resources so I can give you the best advice. Yeah. Pet parents are totally okay with that. Well, and I think that builds a stronger relationship with them. I think if you can stand in front of them and say, you know, I don't know what's going on with your pet, but here's what I think we should do. Here's our options to find out. And then working with them to be like, I don't have the money. Okay. What maybe we should try this, or maybe I can call this person that negotiation between us and the pet parent and the, our clients builds that relationship, I think, because Mm -hmm. then they know you care, you know, you're Mm -hmm. not just trying to throw some fancy diagnosis at them because you don't know. And I love that you say that because that is, I think something that a lot of veterinarians when they first get out, think that they're supposed to be able to answer all the questions. Yeah. And then they have that imposter syndrome about saying, I don't know. Yeah. Like they're so uncomfortable. And I'm like, you have to say, I don't know. And the the client sometimes won't help because they might, especially if you're young or you look young, they'll often comment on it. How long have you been <laughs> practicing? Yeah, How many of these could. kinds of cases have you seen? 
Yeah. And we we've all experienced that. And you just you just roll with it. Just roll with it. It's going to happen and it's yeah. okay. And remain and, you confident. know, and and agree, yeah, remain confident. And a good and a you know, possibly a good retort to that is, you know, I am a recent graduate, but I have all the latest um medical knowledge um at my fingertips because I just got out of school. Right. And you know, um I have access to some of the best minds in veterinary medicine because I was just recently uh taught by them. Right. You know, you turn it into turn it into a positive. Positive, yeah. Yeah, I used to get that when I first started practicing um with I was learning bird medicine from one of my mentors that I worked with Dr. Evans, Randy Evans. And I would walk in the room and you could see the disappointment on the client's face. Yeah. You're like, oh, we thought we were seeing Dr. Evans. And I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. He's not here today. So if you want to reschedule, you can, or you, you know, or I'll do my best to help you. And then they would just be like, oh, okay. You know, but it, you do feel a little bit defeated when someone says that. But if you can just roll with it and be like super confident, nope, it's me. You got me today they, they kind of soften or they do reschedule, which is fine. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, you can't, you, you'll never please everyone. Well, yeah. And you can't try. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love that you said that because that I don't know thing. I just did a podcast on it. I just did a blog about it. It's like saying, I don't know is, is key. And I, and I coach vets that have such a hard time with it. Yeah. And one of the things that, um, you know, we, we had a, you had asked like, where does that come from? Where does, you know, is it because of vet school? Oh, I do cool, think, yeah. you know, I had a couple of experiences that, that probably other people can relate to that I had to, um, overcome awesome. and I had to recognize that, that, that these people who I respected and admired and still do, um, made mistakes in how they um, reflected things to young veterinarians. Um, and here's one example. We I was on uh, our emergency critical care rotation and I was with a one of our instructors at UC Davis, very well-respected um, emergency critical care veterinarian. And um, there was a group of vet students and we were standing around her and she answered the call of a referring vet. So we could only hear her side of the conversation. And she, you know, was seeming, was, you know, seemingly very, or was very respectful to this uh, referring vet and answered the question. And we, you know, and then when she hung up the phone, she said very audibly, and I still to this day do not know if she meant for us to hear or if it was an accident, but she said, we don't graduate them that stupid. What happens? Oh. No. Yes. And I was thought to my, I mean, oh. we all just like shrunk. <laughs> oh and, yeah. That's the word. And I'm like, she just taught all of us to be terrified to seek advice. Right. Yeah. From that's from so a colleague and, and a specialist. Like yeah. here it was the worst lesson she could have taught us. Now she made a mistake. Right. I don't, she's not a terrible human being. She made sure. a mistake. And I don't think she even she may not even realize the impact. That had a huge impact on yeah, me. on a whole class of or a whole group of veterinarians. A whole right? group of veterinarians, and then you know, if I uh, fast forward to I did an internship at um, it was Florida Veterinary Specialists at the time, but it was the original Blue Pearl in Tampa, Florida, 
and it was, I loved my internship. It was great. Um, and the specialists, you know, that, that taught us were, you know, for the most part, amazing. And I got a great education out of it. But one of the things that some of them would do, um, which I did complain about, um, was they would trash the RDVM in front of students and interns. And like, you know, basically just, you know, when they Why were reading they the record or what, yeah, they didn't work exactly. out right or they didn't. Yeah. And absolutely. Listen, I think there is merit when you are teaching um, young veterinarians, there is merit in critiquing cases a hundred percent and showing but, them mistakes that somebody could have made. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or options, right? Like it wasn't necessarily a mistake. And, but right. the, and the thing that they could say, could have said to us as a group of students is, listen, we don't know the circumstances that that veterinarian was practicing under that client could have been refusing things, you know, that, um, that, you know, veterinarian <laughs> may have, you know, been two hours behind and like kind of overwhelmed or, or right. who and knows? like there's made a snap decision, yeah. made a snap decision. And, you know, it's not that they would necessarily have to make excuses, but there's just a risk. There is a respectful way to critique a case where you are not setting up this, um, this vibe of veterinarians insulting other veterinarians. And I, I still see it. I see it on the ER all the time. I see yeah. ER vets trashing GPs. I see, specialists trashing GPs I see and ER vets and GPs I mean everyone's trashing everyone else stop yeah stop. well we I've, yeah, yeah we, we don't, don't need know. to do that yeah I've had um similar things sometimes happen to me where they you call for advice to an ER or whatever and they kind of belittle you a little bit like don't you know that or you should do they kind of have that tone mm -hmm. and I know it's probably because they're busy and they don't want to deal with me or whatever but I, I often hang up the phone and say, well, I'd like to see you draw blood on a 30 gram budgie. Right. <laughs> <It's> something <laughs> I do every day, you know, and I do it well. And so I sometimes kind of try to have that attitude. It's like, okay, they do their thing. I can do mine and just try to brush off that, you know, just that critique, but it does, mm -hmm. it stabs us in the heart. And I kind of had an opposite kind of experience in vet school where I was, and I don't know if I've told the story before on the podcast, but when I was in veterinary school, I had the, the cattle rotation, you know, mm -hmm. with the, and this guy that taught it, Dr. Baker was his name. He was like the God of cow medicine, right? Like he was, he, in my eyes, he like knew everything about cattle. And so I was terrified because I was a small animal kid. I worked with horses a little bit before vet school and, and small animal, but I knew nothing about farms or cattle. And so I went into this rotation in my senior year, just like absolutely terrified that they were going to belittle me and tell me I was stupid and what an idiot, you don't know anything about cows. And so I remember like after a week when I was in his rotation of being just like, uh, all the time, like, oh, I, I got to hide. I can't show anybody that I don't know what I'm doing. He called us in each into the office to see how we thought we were doing. So of course I was like having a panic attack going in there and he said, how do you think you're doing? And I was like, well, you know, I know I don't know anything. And I was kind of like belittling myself and backpedaling and trying to make excuses for what I had done the week before. And he said, wait a minute. He said, where do you think I grew up? I was like, well, on a farm and, you know, with cattle, yeah. he's like, no, I was a suburban kid. I knew nothing about cows. 
I didn't learn about them until I got in veterinary school. I just got interested in them. And that's when I went that way. He said, you're doing great. Your cows in the hospital are the cleanest cows. Cause I would brush them, you know, like horses. Yeah. <laughs> I kept them really clean. Cause that's something I knew how to do. You know, I, I wanted them to feel good and clean. So if they had poop on them, I would clean it. And so he's like, you're doing great. Don't have that, you know? So he was so reassuring to me and it helped me so much in my career. Cause I was like, oh, he didn't know a lot of stuff either. And yeah. now he's like the God of cow medicine. So, you know, I can do this. Like I can learn this. It, it's, it's all going to be okay. And so yeah. I think those kind of lessons, you know, two extremes, right? Yeah. But I really, I really do think we have to remember that, that, you know, we're all human and we're all on this learning curve all the time. Yeah. Like exactly I so much. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how far into your career you get, there will always be things you don't know, right? And, and, and sometimes that's a lot point. more as you get older, like the new vets are coming out and they're like, well, we want to use this drug. And I'm like, oh, I never even heard of it. Okay, teach me, yeah. you know? Exactly. Like there's something to learn from everyone and um, from every member of the team. And and I really, I really get that a lot as a relief vet. Um, and yes. I do think it helps being, you know, as a relief vet, going to different practices with different teams, I get to see like how other doctors handle cases. And, yeah. and I will ask, you know, I'll be like, well, you know, um, how does Dr. Capel handle this type of case? And I'm not asking necessarily because I don't know what to do, or sometimes right. it might be because I'm not sure what to do. Right. But it's because I'm trying to learn and I'm yes. trying to broaden my toolkit and, and my knowledge base. Well, and I think that's really good for your team too, to, be humble enough to say, what do you think? You know, yeah. I'll sometimes do that with my texts. I'm like, this thing needs a bandage, but I don't know. What do you think? How yeah. should we bandage this? Or what do you think we should do? Or, or you're better at bandaging than I am. You, you do it, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I really think that's good for them and it builds their self-esteem and, um, and it's not bad for us either to be a little humble, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. percent in so, any part of life. So I'm going to change the subject a little bit, but it kind of springboards off of this is have you ever in your career felt like either like you do relief work? Do you ever feel like stuck or burned out or, you know, that's a big problem in our profession right now. Have you ever felt that? And if so, like, how did you deal with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I was, I have been there. <laughs> we all have, right? Yeah. I have been there as one of those vets that um, was just really, really burnt out. And um, I was, so I did, I was, I was an intern for a few months and had to drop out because I got sick. I was an associate for like a year and a half. I went back and did the internship because it bugged me. I didn't finish it. Didn't finish. So I went back and started over and, and did that. And then I went into relief work. And then I came back and I was an associate for four and a half years. And it was that four and a half years that I was an associate. Well, it was the latter part of that four and a half years that I was an associate again, um, where I burnt out. I was also doing relief a little bit to kind of supplement my income um, while I was an associate. So some, I certainly take responsibility for the burnout that I was feeling, I was working too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I just, yeah. I flat sometimes out was working have, too much. Yeah. Sometimes you have to look inward, right. And say, yeah. what am I doing that I could change? Yeah. But I was, um, I, I'm very customer service oriented and, um, 
we, I worked at a practice, awesome practice. I still do relief there. Um, and they will see anyone like we won't turn people away. Anytime. Yeah. There are some practices like that. Yeah. And the thing that I did love about, well, one, it was a good business decision from, from their perspective. Um, they're, they remain one of the most popular clinics in town. Um, and with the, you know, best reputation, I guess is what I mean. Um, but it was terrible for quality of life for the doctors. I was on board with it. They weren't forcing me. I was not really being forced to do what I was doing, but, um, they would, so if it was, you know, they closed at 5.30. If a client came in at 5.29 or even 5.30 on the dot, they would get put in the line of work-ins. Mm. And we would sometimes be 10 deep yeah. when, when we closed. And um, it was crazy. And so we were basically running an after-hours urgent care. Now, I felt, I felt this, like this was came from me. You know, some of it came from the business, but it, a lot of it came from me. Like I wanted to help those pets. And I was didn't so, want to turn anyone away. I didn't want to turn anyone to, away. And one thing that would reinforce that is when those pet parents would say to me, thank you so much for seeing us. Our regular vet couldn't get us in. Right. And that would only reinforce my, you know, that kind of released all the dopamine. And I'd be like, oh, okay. you're like, I'm the best vet ever. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so good that I'm, you know, staying late and I'm not taking care of myself <laughs> and all this other stuff, you know. I, so I do take responsibility for, for, for getting, bur- getting burnt out because I did not create boundaries for myself um, until it was too late. And then I did get to a point where I just was about to collapse. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And, Physically but I, and emotionally, like, both, 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 I was a mess and I would, I would come home from work and I would literally like, I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. I'm, I'm married and, you know, I don't have any kids, but I'm married. So I have one other person in the household and two other dogs to talk to. <laughs> and I just, I couldn't speak. I couldn't, I didn't wow. want to. And you're an extrovert, it. right? Are well, you an extrovert? I think, I think I'm, um, I think I'm an extroverted introvert. Okay. But okay. at the same time. I don't like to label people, but, but it's fascinating when you talk at work all day. Yeah. You come, Cause I'm a talker, but I'll sometimes come home from a long day at work and I'm like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Yes. I, I spent my whole day smiling and nodding and talking. I'm like, yes, I'm <laughs> exactly. And that was how I felt, but I felt it too. Like it was, it became pathological, right? It yeah. was not, it was a it wasn't normal. I think it was clinical depression. I never got diagnosed or you mm. know, treated or anything like that. Yeah, um, but I just, I couldn't speak. I didn't want to eat. I would, but I didn't really want to eat. I didn't want to, you know, watch Netflix with my husband. I just wanted to like sit and stare. I'm like, okay. I was like, this isn't normal. Yeah. That's burnout for sure. Right. Yeah. Total Mm -hmm. burnout. And so I got myself out of it by, um, deciding to go back and do relief so that I could control my own schedule and, um, add some more variety into my life and take some time to figure out what I wanted to do so I could reinvent myself. I knew I needed to get into that reinvention stage. Um, and you know, so I went, I went through a whole process, but that was how I got myself out of that situation. Yeah. So what would your advice be to people that are feeling that way now? Like I, 
I coach a lot of people that come to me saying they're stuck. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's one of the big lines. I'm stuck. I feel stuck. And cause that's a feeling, right? It's not, it's not, it's never true. Like we're never truly Mm-mm. stuck. We feel like we are, but we're not that. And I'm burned out. And so I know what I would tell them. Um, and, and mine is not quitting your job. It's more mm-hmm. working on your mindset and, you know, kind of doing the work required to figure out what the problem is, which is kind of what you did. You're like, I need to go back to relief work. I need to, you know, do the work to figure this out. But um, any, any like brilliant thoughts that you came up with as going through that, that you could help somebody that's feeling that way. Like, I, I, would, I think one yeah. of them is there's a way out. Yes, there's always a way out. And I agree, you're never truly stuck. It may feel that way. And I felt that way for longer than I should have allowed myself to feel that way. But you're never truly stuck. You know, even if, you know, you certainly, you know, need the income, you know, if you're in a position where you absolutely need- What makes you feel the most stuck sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That there are, and, and I'm not suggesting that quitting your job is- is always the right decision. It is. But things that helped me shift my mindset. Now, this was in combination with quitting my job, which opened up time for me to do these things. Right. But I think you could do it even if you're in your job. I had to reset my brain. And how I did that was I decided I am like, I am someone who loves novelty. I just get super stimulated by novelty. I get, I love change, which, which may make me a little bit of an outlier because a lot of people don't love change. I love change. Yeah. And so what I did is I started taking different classes. I took a flash nonfiction writing class um, at one point online. Um, I took a painting. I'm not an artist at all, (laughs) like at all. And I took a painting class. And what I told myself was that this is only to like, um, you know, kind of like soften up some of those hard places in, in my brain and like sweep away the cobwebs and open up, unlock, just open up some channels. Unlock your creativity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I told myself when I took that painting class, I was like, Cindy, this is not about getting good at it. This is not about suddenly becoming a painter. And like, I didn't allow myself to have these visions of like, oh my gosh, I find out I'm really amazing at this or whatever. <laughs> like it was truly just about forcing my mind to do something different than what it had been like focusing on pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. And doing those things completely changed my mindset and completely changed my perspective. And um, that worked for me. I don't yeah. know that it necessarily works for everyone or maybe, you know, painting or, or, or writing isn't what's going to work for you. But for me, doing something novel can really change, change your mind. Yeah. I, I coach people on this concept that I learned um, in life coaching that you can change your feeling, which is your stuck, your stuckness, right. Or your mm-hmm. overwhelm or whatever it is. You can change your feelings by either thinking differently or doing something differently. And so that's mm-hmm. exactly what you did. You changed your activity. You, you took some action and it, it wasn't even action in the direction of changing your work, but you took some action to kind of try to unlock that stuckness or that brain, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, a big part of it was not just the act of painting or the act of writing. It was the people I met. Mm-hmm. So I met all these other people and, and I realized how small my world had become, you know, where I was just, you know, I have my family and friends and I have friends who are not in the veterinary space, but, um, but I had spent so much of my time in work and so much of my time thinking about work and is staying late to finish records or look things up for clients or, or the things that a lot of us do that I had forgotten about the world outside of my little bubble. And yeah, that there's um, different people with different jobs and there's different jobs and different, there have different stressors. And it just like, I don't know, it's like so enlightening and, and um, it just lifted me up in the, the best way possible. That's amazing. I think that's great advice. I think if you're really feeling stuck to just try to take a class or figure out something you're interested in that doesn't involve vet med. You know, we always say take a walk or meditate or yoga, but it's no, do something really cool, you know, that yeah. you think is cool. You know, like I tap dance, which is kind of weird. I, know. But I, I love, love that. It. So I love that. Yeah, it's just kind of like I go to tap class, even though I'll never be a great tap dancer, but it it gets my mind in a different spot than being stuck at work, right? I love that. Did we talked about that? In, I in think Orlando. we did. We ta- yeah, we talked before. Because I, because I told when I get stressed at work, I'm kind of famous for this is how I let out the stress is I, I tap dance. Really? And so people, yeah, people think That's I'm silly, awesome. um, which I don't mind being known as silly. Um, but it does like, it just like, I'll do a double time step, like a few times. Like, okay. That just like relieved the stress for me. <laughs> Yeah, because you got to tell your feet what to do and you you can't think about anything else, right? Yeah. Especially when you're older like me, it's like that brain has to get to your feet and it it's not always that easy. No, no. <laughs> Figure that do you out. Know, do you know Dr. Kim Pope Robinson with um, One yeah, Life Connected? I just, I just did a um, Power of 10 in Michigan and she was one of our speakers. So I just spent a couple of days with her about a month ago and I, I'm going to have her on the podcast. I keep forgetting to reach out to her, but yeah, I did. I, I do know her. So she's awesome. And she came up with this, this idea called a bubble break. And so when you yes. have her on the podcast, mm-hmm. she will explain this much better than I'm going to, yeah. but the idea is that, so she will sometimes bring bubbles to work. And I started doing this. I will, on my relief jobs, I'll bring bubbles and I'll hand them out to the team. Yeah. And you know, you take a bubble break, you know, maybe you, you pop outside or at one point we did it over the treatment table, but, um, and we had the, the clinic cat was like popping the bubbles that <laughs> you, you know, you take the, like the little kid bubbles where you, yep. you pull the, the little thing ball, out. The little round thing. Yeah. And, and I can't, I'm not, I don't, Kim, I'm sorry if you hear this, I'm not explaining it exactly right. You'll do so much better. But basically the idea is that you cannot think of anything else when you're doing that. Right. Because you, you have, have to, to concentrate, take a, right? You have to take a breath in. You have <laughs> to concentrate. You're very focused on making the bubble work. And then you're watching it float away. And it truly, and it's silly. It's pretty it, genius, it, right? It's so genius. It provides you this like sense of like childishness that is fun, right? Mm-hmm. And that sense of like wonder and it just brings you back down. And I've done that several times and I've spread it to other people and it totally works. So yeah. if you can't tap dance, take right. a bubble break. <laughs> yeah. And, and on that same, on that same thought thread is there's so many things that you can do in your veterinary hospital with your team 
to get more childlike, you know, like we did a lot of games and, you know, if it's nice outside, go outside for lunch and have a picnic or, you know, jump rope or I don't know, whatever, whatever you can think of that kind of takes everybody back to when you could just have fun, you know, because when yes. you're a kid, all you do is have fun all day long. And it's sad that we've lost that ability to do that again, you know, so that's what tap dancing is for me or riding my bike. That's kind of a kid thing, you know, just getting out of your way and reliving some of that joy. Yeah. That and that's absolutely. what the bubbles, you know, when she talks about the bubbles, I'm like, yeah, that's the kid thing. So yeah. you know, Easter egg hunts at work, um, treasure hunts, building with Legos, like we've done all of those things or that minute to win it game is a blast. You know, just anything that you can think of that you know, brings everybody back to just being and just yeah. experiences. Yeah. So um, I know once before, and I, I don't know when I heard this from you, but we talked about an instance where you had that ability to change your mindset in vet med. And I think it was about you not liking dentistry because oh, I, yeah. I, I am similar. Like I'm not a big, I like dentistry from the standpoint of making the teeth clean but the patience of it and pulling teeth is, is difficult for me. So it was at it. It was a dental. Yeah, yeah that was, what, that was one of it. Well, let's talk and, about that. Cause that's a changing mindset story, right? To totally. And, and there is a reason for the saying it's like pulling teeth, right? I mean, <laughs> I always say that I'm like, Oh, this is why they came up with that. Like when I'm sitting there and my texts are like, you have to be patient, Dr. Capel, you have to breathe. You have to count to 10. Like they coach yeah. me because I get so like, I'm going to kill this tooth, you know, and, and yes. break it. it. Oh yeah. So we, I learned to, to sing the Jeopardy song um, oh, that's while, a you're, while you're holding the elevator. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. Um, so no, so this is, the, so my lesson, one of the sort of life or career lessons I learned from hating dentistry was that when I was, you know, an associate, um, I, you know, had, I had to do dentals. I was part of my job. Yeah. And, um, I literally would just feel like sick to my stomach on my surgery day. So we had basically a surgery day where that was all we did all day. Yeah. And so, you know, it would be whatever space you'd have a neuter and the spay and a dental. Yeah. yeah that's kind Lump of how removal, whatever, like all yeah. the, all the things. And, um, and I would just feel sick to my stomach. And I would always like looking like, please don't let me have any dentals. Please don't let me have any dentals. <laughs> and of course I would, because so many pets need a law of attraction, right? The more you yeah. see, the more they're going to show up. <laughs> and it just made me so, so frustrated. And I just, you know, I, I, I just hated it. And so I started saying to myself, like, I hate dentals. I hate dentals. I would hear myself use that word. I hate, I hate, yeah. I hate. And um, at one point, so then I was doing, now I've moved on and I'm doing relief work uh, all over. And I want to provide a, a great experience for my, um, clinic clients. So I consider as a relief that the practice is my client. Um, and I want to provide a great service for them and they, you know, dentals, uh, are important for the pets, you know, first and foremost, but it's also an economic engine for the practice. Sure. And I didn't want to be that relief vet that was like, I don't do dentals but I hated doing dentals. And I could have been that relief that, that said, I don't do dentals. Right. Um, a lot of people do, right? Right. A lot of people do. And, and I'm not saying that that isn't valid if you, if you don't, but the, the lesson is not that the lesson is that I ended up deciding, I was like, why do I hate dentals so much? And I was like, it's because I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. That's why I hate dentals. Yeah. And so I, 
at my own expense, there was no employer paying for this, but it was a business, it was a write-off. Um, I went to the NAVC Institute and they have like these very focused, um, you know, subjects that you can go attend for, it's like three to five days. And the dentistry one, I think was five days. And I, you just learn, it's wet labs all day. You learn how to properly pull teeth, how to evaluate dental radiographs, what to do if you, how to make flaps, what to do if you break a root, what to do if the root ends up in the sinus, like all these things that we're all terrified of, you learn to do it and you actually do it. I left that institute loving dentistry. Isn't that funny? It changed everything for me. And so the point of the story is, is when you hear yourself saying, I hate this, I hate that. Think to yourself, do I really hate this or do I just not have enough knowledge on it yet? And can I learn more? And could this turn into something that I either love or a service that I can provide to help these animals? Now, it might be true that sometimes there are things that you just absolutely don't like and you absolutely don't want to do. And I feel like for me, that's orthopedic surgery. I kind of figured that out. And that's cool. It's like, it's just not my jam. And I don't and it's ever very specialized. Like you want somebody yeah. that knows what they're doing to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not to say that there aren't that, that you can't limit your services to the things that you choose to excel at. And, um, but it's just a reminder. If you find yourself hating something, reflect on that and figure out, do you want to, do you hate it just because you need to learn more? Yeah. I love that. Cause that, that was true for me too, because I didn't know how to do dentals and I was, I was of the generation that there were no x-rays mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you have to do x-rays. And I was like, oh, now I have to pull a lot more teeth, which I don't like doing. Right. <laughs> and, um, but, but learning, like taking some classes, signing up for courses, how do I read them? How do I, you know, and then even sometimes I'd be in the middle of a dental and I have a friend who's a cat specialist. If I was doing a cat, I'd be like, oh, I don't know what to do with this tooth or what do I do with this mouth? Um, but just learning makes it less intimidating. Yeah. You know? And it's- sometimes it might even make it fun. I do when I get a, a really hard tooth out, I dance around and sing the Rocky music because I love yeah. it. <laughs> so they always laugh at me because I'll be like, dun, 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 with my tooth in the air, you know, because because I get it's exciting to get those out successfully. So yeah, I love that. That's a great way to reset your mind. And it really does unlock your feelings. Like mm-hmm. you probably have some affection for dentistry now because you think about it differently. Like I know how to do this. I got this. Yeah. And it, and, I do too. it, and because, and I thought this even when I hated it, but I, to me, dentistry is one of it. It is so impactful. Mm. Like there are so many animals with horrible right. mouths. Oh yeah. And when you fix them, it is so incredibly impactful because I mean, how many times have you heard the story of like, you know, when, you know, they're so afraid to get all those teeth pulled, but then they get all those teeth pulled and the owners are like, Oh my God, they're like a puppy again. Yeah, they, like feel they didn't realize how much chronic oral pain they were living in. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's just, I, I probably, you know, if I could like split myself into multiple people, I, you know, I might 
in in some other version of myself be a veterinary dental specialist because I just I love the I love the impact yeah yeah exactly well that's why I used to love cleaning teeth you know it it did I didn't really start not liking dentals until I had to pull teeth that weren't like flapping in the breeze you know right and I was like oh this is hard I don't like this but you know just getting that training you're right it really does help so I'm going to change the subject um I want to hear about you being an entrepreneur, the CEO of Relief Rover, right? Or the co-founder. Tell yeah. me about Relief Rover. So Relief Rover um, is, is solo founded, um, solo founded, bootstrapped. And, and basically I was, this is when I was re- kind of recovering from my burnt out phase. And I was taking those courses and I was, my mind was starting to crack open. And one of the things um that I started to feel is like, you know, vet med does have these challenges and rather than, and I was getting weighed down by, you know, being in practices and I was now I'm a relief. I'm going to these different practices and hearing the complaints, but not hearing any solutions. Yeah. So there was just a lot of complaining and no problem solving. And I thought to myself like, Oh God, it's just weighing me down. And I didn't have the answers either, right? Like, um, but I was like, there's gotta be people who are interested in solving these problems or trying to solve these problems. And I wasn't aware of who they were necessarily. And um, and I got this email for the Veterinary Innovation Summit, which was the, the very first one they had. And I think this was 2017. Um, and it was at Texas A&M and just the word innovation was interesting to me because I thought, ah, maybe I'll find my people there. Yeah. And so I went, I signed up. I didn't know anybody. I just flew there by myself. This is one thing I do think can be helpful when you're feeling stuck is if you are a person who's shy about meeting people, which um, I'm not, I'm not shy. um, But like many people, I might feel discomfort in being in a situation where I don't know anybody. Right. And, um, and having to introduce myself to people is an uncomfortable feeling, you know, for even I think for, for most people that is yeah. like, it doesn't look it cause we put on a good show. Right. You know, like I, I'm pretty extroverted so I can, I can jump into a uncomfortable situation, but it still feels uncomfortable. Right. Exactly. It, you know, exactly. it doesn't look like it on the outside. It's getting comfortable being uncomfortable. So, right. um, so I went to this innovation summit and, um, I just, you know, went to the sessions, I started, I introduced myself to people. And I just started getting this feeling of, wow, these are my people. These are people who are trying to solve problems, who are coming up with solutions, whether it's products or services, some, and and many of them are approaching these problems from having experienced them themselves, sometimes not, sometimes just true business people looking for uh, a business opportunity, but um, I met a lot of interesting people and that kind of cracked open my mind to the idea of Relief Rover. So that was one big thing that happened. The second thing that happened was um, I was sitting at my breakfast table in Florida. I get this little ping from LinkedIn and it's a solo practitioner out in Truckee, California, which is near Lake Tahoe, which is gorgeous. And she, I don't know her. She doesn't know me. And she reaches out and she's like, can you cover my maternity leave? you know, this summer. And I'm like, what? Who are you? I was like, (laughs) well, I was like, this is crazy. This is a total needle in a haystack, but I'm just crazy enough 
to do it. And I have the lifestyle that allows me to do it because I'm a relief vet. I have no children. Right. My husband's a freelance photographer. So we can throw the dogs in the car and drive from Florida to California and spend a summer out there. We, nice. we have the ability to do that. Yeah. And so the, everything lined up. I had a, like a half hour conversation on the phone with her. I went out and I basically had my own practice for the summer. I worked Monday through Friday. Um, I got out easily on time every day. There's plenty of sun to go hiking and do other things after work. And then I just had a blast on the weekends Wow! and it worked out brilliantly for both of us. And I thought to myself, I can't be the only one. I can't possibly be the only one who's willing to do this. Yeah. And so I looked around, I was like, there's no national platform to connect relief veterinarians with opportunities. Hmm no matter where those opportunities were. Now there's, there were regional staffing agencies, right? But there was, but that's different as a staffing agency. You're, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different business model right? than what I wanted to do. The other thing I noticed is that nobody was talking about relief practice in, um, at conferences, right. Or really writing about it. No, exactly. It's still, it's, it's rare even now. It is rare even now. And I thought to myself, what about other people who want, like being a relief vet is, is a great career choice for some people. Mm -hmm. And, um, there should be, and it's, it, it takes a specific skill set that can be learned to do it well and to enjoy it. And, um, and I was like, someone needs to be talking about this. So (laughs) I self-anointed myself, the expert, which (laughs) I can do this. Yeah, that's a, that's a good attitude. It's like, oh, this is a problem that needs to be solved. I'm going to solve it. Yeah. And and by no means do I know everything. And by no means did, you know, my career as a relief vet unfold perfectly. But um, I was like, you know, no one else is talking about it. So I'm going to get myself talking about it. Nice. And so I got myself on the speaking circuit. I started doing podcasts. And I started just talking about it and I invested my own money to build this Relief Forever website um, where uh, it's it's basically a community of relief vets and now technicians. And we now have, it launched in July of 2018, and we now have over 3,700 vets nationwide. We have a, over 500 techs. We're getting about um, 100 to 150 new relief pros every month. Um, signing up, it's free for for the relief side. And then employers um, pay us to come on, you know, either a low monthly or annual subscription to come on and they can post as many opportunities as they want. They can reach out to our relief pros because the relief pros have a profile. Um, They can choose to make their profile invisible, but um, if they, if they don't want to be reached out to, but and, and then we have a lot of um, discounts. We have, we partner with Fear Free, with Plums, with Vet Girl, and some others to give discounts to this population of people because they're, you know, when when you go into relief work, you don't, you no longer have an employer paying for those paying things for, for all you. that, your licenses yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to, you know, try to help uh, provide some discounts. We also have webinars. We have race approved webinars every month. Um, on content that is relevant to relief pros. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I I did relief work for a little while years ago, and I'm kind of doing it now a little bit more. So that's a, a fascinating thing because it is so different. It is. It's a different. It's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting way to have a career, and not everyone um, will like it. 
But the other interesting thing is that I started Relief Rover for people like me, like people who wanted to be career relief vets. But what I have learned and what we've, you know, the the platform has evolved to, to help people who are using relief for all sorts of reasons. But some people are want to be career relief vets. They're doing it as a career. They love to be business to business service providers. They love serving clinics. Right. Then there are the people that are using relief because they are either at some transition phase in their career, or they just need to do it for a few years, maybe while the kids are young, or, you know, like me, I'm in the elder care stage of my life. Maybe it's, you know, caring for older people, or you may have some other responsibility in your life or, or hobby or something else you want to pursue. And you need that flexibility for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've seen people doing um, is they're actually using relief work to date before they marry. And when I started noticing this, I was oh, like, oh yeah, yeah, to check out clinics. Yeah, I've, I've seen I was that like, a lot. This is like the smartest thing in the whole wide world because, I, and I think honestly, everyone should do that. Mm-hmm. I think that that veterinarians, and I think this is happening in other industries as well, but veterinarians have lost trust in the job post. And if you think about how crazy it is, how the the process by which we agree to this very important relationship of an employer employee for years, we sign on for years <laughs> is crazy. So, um, you know, you, you read a job post, it has all these promises, which may or may not be true. <laughs> um, right. and you go for one, maybe two interviews at best. Yeah. Working interview for a couple hours and everyone's on their best behavior. Everyone's on their best behavior. Exactly. Everyone's on their best behavior. You like, end don't up... screw this up for me. I, as an owner, I'd be like, we have someone coming in. So behave right. yourselves. <laughs> right. And then you, and then you sign some contract, which may or may not include a non-compete, which may or may not affect your ability to work. And it's a serious relationship and you're yeah. going to spend a ton of your life there. We should want, and I always say, I, when I talk about this at conferences, I always have the audience raise their hand. Like, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. How many of you who are married got married, agreed to get married after two dates? <laughs> Nobody raises their hand. Right. Zero. Like that might happen in Vegas with Elvis and alcohol involved, but it doesn't. Otherwise, it just doesn't. But it's so true, happen. right? You spend more time at work than you do at home a lot of times when you're working. Full so time. I really feel like em- both employers and employees should want this dating period. Yeah. And, and relief is such a perfect way to um, to do that because it gives you both an opportunity because it is not only financially expensive for the practice, but it is emotionally expensive and culturally expensive for the practice. Oh yeah. Emotionally expensive for both parties. It's disappointing. Well, yeah. And you don't want, you don't want to hire a vet. I mean, I hired vets for years. You don't want to hire one. And then six months later, have your whole team saying this isn't working. Right. Because you don't want to, you don't want to destroy that person's life by firing them. And it also takes a whole lot of effort to get another vet in the door. Yeah. It's just like as as a employer, you want it to be a good choice. Yeah. And, and it, it is gets much easier with experience, but you don't always know because those candidates are on their best behavior too. 
Exactly. Exactly. It is, it is something both parties should want. And it is far less expensive to hire them, like to agree to some period of time that they'll work as an independent contractor, they'll work relief. And then we, we, we decide, then we both come together and we decide, do we want to get married? It's no different than dating. That's awesome. So how do you get around with relief rover, the license thing? Like I was thinking, like I have two state licenses, but you said you went to California. Like yeah. if somebody was going to travel to do relief, would they have to get multiple licenses? I'm guessing yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be licensed in in whatever state. There are some states that will have like temporary licensing and like some some ways, but it's it you varies. Get around it. Yeah, it varies by state. Okay. I happen to have I because I was a UC Davis grad and I got a California license. So I've just kept it. Kept it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a license in Montana for a little while because we were traveling to Montana to do relief. I let that one lapse. It's easy to get back if I wanted to. Yeah. I keep one in Washington state and I keep one in Florida. Okay. But yeah, you do have to get licensed. And we have a resource on, on the relief forever website, um, has kind of a breakdown of the down and dirty of what you need for both licensing, Mm -hmm. um, and also DEA requirements by state. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, that's awesome. All right. Is there anything else we need to say about Relief Rover? Or I want to go on to your other business, your other entrepreneurial venture a little bit before we cl- before we close out this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And if, if anyone's interested in learning more about Relief Rover, yes, um, yeah, ReliefRover.com or um, please also feel free to reach out directly to me. And, and Julie, do they have like, is there some like access they yeah, have, like where yeah. I could give I'll, in the show notes, I'll give all your information, your email, okay. like whatever, but at the end, we'll say it again, but okay. yeah, I'll put this all in whatever you want me to add. It'll be, it'll be available. Okay. Yeah. So notes. I don't mind if people email me directly either. Awesome. Okay. So tell me about kick it. Okay. So yeah, when you told I me am... about this. I was like, Oh, this is the coolest. so I definitely I am all I'm all in in this on this entrepreneurial journey (laughs) Um, I love that because a lot of people are interested in being entrepreneurs but it's very intimidating it is it is I I will and it is there's no it is a roller coaster ride like you always hear it it's a roller coaster ride but it It really is is a roller coaster ride like they're not joking when they say that um uh but so kick it pajamas the the idea for this started was lit, right when I graduated vet school, I was two months, three months into my internship and I was diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. And so yeah. I had to drop out and I received chemo radiation. I was in the hospital a lot because the, um, they would do my chemo in the hospital. So I'd be like seven days in, then out and in then out. And, um, and uh, a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine gave me this cute pair of pajamas that I wore in the hospital. And that changed everything for me. I felt so much better in these pajamas than I did in that uncomfortable, ugly, demeaning hospital gown. With the snaps and your butt hanging out. Exactly. And just, it just, it, it is amazing, like the difference, the psychological difference it made for me. At the time, I was dating my now husband. And so he would come visit me. And I just felt so much better. <laughs> like when I was, I felt dressed. But the problem was, is that the the pajamas didn't have the functionality that they needed 
to make, um, you know, medical care easy for, for the, the nurses. Right. And so I was like, oh, well, why don't they just make cute pajamas with snaps on the sleeve? <laughs> and, um, and so I kind of, that's when the idea popped in my head. But, you know, I had a lot of recovering to do. Then I went on, you know, when I was starting to work as a vet and, um, and I kind of tucked the idea away for a few years, but then it just kept gnawing at me that I wanted to do this. And so I don't know anything about fashion. (laughs) If you ask my friends, I am the least fashionable of all of them. They need to tell me what to wear. Um, so the idea that I would start, uh, you know, sort of fashion company or clothing company is just ludicrous. But this is where I was like, you know what? If we if we circle back to the beginning of this podcast where we were like, it's okay not to know. It is okay not to know. Right. You can always learn. You can learn. Yeah. And so what I did was I went to I contacted a fashion school in Tampa and I worked with, I just told them my idea. They connected me with the right people there. And we came up with prototypes and I got things going and I came up with the name and some branding. And then after several years of trying to get this to go, I um, put it in the closet. I put it away. I was like, I'm trying to be a vet. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing this all by myself. Got discouraged. I got discouraged. I was like, I can't invest any more money than this. I think it's a great idea, but I got to put it away. Fast forward over a decade later, one of my best friends um, from elementary school, who's a business person, just serendipitously met these two women who own a clothing company. And she, Beth, my friend came to me and she's like, Cindy, can we pull kick it out of the closet? And I was like, let's do it. So the four of us launched kick it pajamas. So now we have these people with the, that kind of manufacturing design expertise. And, um, you know, Beth is an amazing business person. And then, you know, I brought the story and and the idea to the table. Right. right. And it's always good to have a story when you're starting a business, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we launched, we started selling in December of 2020. Um, And um, yeah, and we're growing and we, and we sell um, pajamas for hospital wear, but also home. We have a home recovery line. We do other clothing and, um, and accessories, and it's all designed with uh, cancer patients in mind, but it could be really honestly for any woman with illness. Right now, we only have women's, uh, but we do have plans to launch men's and children's as well eventually. Um, but the idea behind it is that you can, that, that feeling good with what you're wearing actually does help with your emotional immunity. It yeah. makes a difference in how you feel. Right. And, um, and so we wanted these, com- these pajamas to be stylish, comfortable and functional. And so that those three things go into every, every design that we, that we make. That's so cool. That's a great idea too. I'm glad that you came back to it. Because so many times we have ideas and we're like, that would be a good idea. I, I, every time I'm driving around my, in my area, I'm like, that would be a good place for a veterinary hospital. And then yeah. like years later, someone will build one there. I'm like, see, I told you that would have yeah. been a good place to build. <laughs> and so. we all like constantly have those ideas. And it is true that not all of them are, are either worth acting on or it's not the right timing to act on them. But sometimes you 
there is a huge leap of faith yes. in being an entrepreneur. an entrepreneur. Yeah. And um, it's, but it can be worth it. Even if things don't succeed, it can right. be worth it. Yeah. You'll learn a lot. I'm sure you're learning a lot about the fashion business and the industry and how things sell and online selling and like all of that. So much. I'm, yeah. I'm learning so much, but here's the thing. I am, you know, I definitely for, for both Relief Rover and Kick It Pajamas, how I've approached entrepreneurship. I'm not, I feel like there's two kinds of entrepreneurs. There are entrepreneurs who want, you know, who are business people and, and are looking for an opportunity to create a successful business. So they're like, hmm, where is there a problem and how can I solve it? And how can I make a lot of money at it? Yeah. And sometimes how can I make a lot of money in it? Or, or maybe many times, how can I make a lot of money in it? And then there are entrepreneurs who are trying to solve a problem that they personally experienced and they come at it with, yeah, like there's a, it, it's a different approach in some right. ways. And both, I wanted to help. I love the veterinary profession so much. I'm so proud to be a veterinary professional. I with with all of my heart believe that a healthy pool of relief vets are vital to the health of our profession. And so I wanted to be a part of growing and supporting that part of our profession. And then on the other side, I really believe that um, in helping women with cancer or women going through any kind of, of illness. And, um, and so what keeps me going on both of those when it's hard and it is hard, mm -hmm. it, it is expensive, it's hard and it is definitely an emotional roller coaster ride and you've got to buckle in. But what keeps me going is when I receive feedback or when I have helped in, in on the veterinary side. Um, and when all I have to do is go look for kick it pajamas is go look at our Etsy reviews. They're amazing. They're literally women. It'll make me cry sometimes. Like wow. there was one woman who said, these pajamas are so amazing. I almost can't wait for my surgery. And wow. then there's the gift givers because a, a lot of, you know, people are buying these as gifts for people and That's they'll say, thank of. you so much for giving us something to give. Right. Cause if someone that you love is suffering through cancer treatment, like what do you do? Like here's yeah. some flowers, here's some candy yeah. like that. Nothing makes sense, but yeah. that, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we say. We say, stay away from the F's and give the C's. So the F's yeah. are um, flowers, fragrance, and food, which yeah. don't get me wrong. All like flowers are beautiful. I got, I received all of those things while right. I was sick. But what I learned um, from going through that experience is flowers um, are beautiful, but fleeting. And depending on your immune status, you may actually not be allowed to have them. Right. If, if right. you are really immunosuppressed, they don't, they won't let you have flowers in your room. Right. Yeah. And then um, food, um, don't feel like your patients need to stay nourished, but you often it, it's hard to eat and that you can be very particular about what you're eating. And then fragrance. I had a friend gave me these lavender bath products, which I loved at first. I was so, I was like, Oh God, it smells so good. And lavender is comforting. And then as the chemo started kicking in, I associated the smell of lavender with feeling nauseous. Oh no. And yeah, that's not good. I, yeah. And so, you know, food fragrance flowers can be tough. For cancer patients. So we say, yeah. give the C's, give the gift gifts of care and comfort. Yeah. That's so smart. I love that. Well, this has been super fun. Is there anything that we should have, I should have asked you that I didn't before we wrap up? I don't think so. 
I think we covered a lot, but I yeah, do need to come back. This has been super fun. I'm sure I would, there's plenty more things we can talk about. I would be happy to. I would, I'm so fun. appreciative of you inviting me on and, and getting an opportunity to talk. And um, I am I am an open book for anyone who yeah. wants to reach well, out tell to me. Us, tell us all the places people can find you if, if they're able to uh, write it down or remember it or record it. Yeah. So put it in the show notes too. So tell me all the places. So, I mean, I'm on, you know, you can reach out to me personally on LinkedIn, Cindy Trice. Um, and uh, if you want to look into Relief Rover, it's reliefrover.com. Um, Kick It Pajamas is kickitpajamas.com. And um, and I'm happy to have people reach out to me at Cindy Trice DVM at reliefrover.com. Uh, awesome. That's my email. Um, I'm happy to talk about anything relief, entrepreneurship, whatever. You're an open book. I'm a total open book. As am I. We just want to help people, right? Exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been great. I've learned a lot about you more than I knew before, even though I knew some of it. And um, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of the things you said will resonate with people out there. So I, I really enjoyed it. And we'll do it again. We'll come up with another subject to talk about and we'll have another podcast somewhere maybe later in the summer, in the fall or whatever, when you're not busy, but right now I can see you're really busy. <laughs> I would love that. I don't foresee myself ever not being not busy, but that's okay. We are, there's always we'll make time, time to have these wonderful conversations. Yeah, I love it. All right. It's been so fun. This is Dr. Cindy Trice and I really appreciate you being here and uh, have a beautiful week, everyone. Bye, Cindy. Bye.